This is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, in 1946, Steven Spielberg was born. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And for the hour, for an hour, we spend some time on this remarkable life. Let's start off at the beginning. Steven Allen Spielberg was born on December 18th 1946 in Ohio. World War II was over, and the country was finally getting back to normal. In the mid-40s, that meant fathers commuted to their jobs. Most mothers stayed home with their kids. Cars were American, and telephones were connected to wires. Middle-class families flocked to the suburbs. Stephen grew up in suburbia with his three sisters. His Jewish parents, Leah and Arnold, were the children of immigrants. Arnold, a World War II vet, loved science and machines. After finishing his studies in electrical engineering, he quickly found work in the brand new field of computer science. At that time, computers were the size of entire rooms, and few people knew about them. Arnold was one of the first. Here's Steven Spielberg. He was on the team that engineered the first commercial data processor at RCA in the uh, early 50s. And my mom was a concertinist, so they, they, they got my attention in two different directions. It was difficult to find a place where the family could put down roots because Arnold was such an outstanding engineer. He was always being offered new and better jobs, which meant that the Spielbergs moved a lot. Going from one school to another was hard for Stephen. He was always the new boy in class and spent a lot of his childhood feeling like an outsider. His refuge was a cluttered bedroom. He kept turtles, free-flying parakeets, and a lizard as pets. And he wrote stories instead of doing his homework. Stephen often longed for a friend who was different like he was. Sometimes he thought that a small, kindly alien would be ideal. When he was required to read A Tale of Two Cities, Stephen's doodles opened up his future. So what I did was I just made little stick figures in the, in the dog-eared sections of the book, you know, anime, uh, one frame at a time, different positions, and it was like a flip book, and I just did flip books and, and saw these images come to life, and that was the first time I actually was able to create an image that moved um, on the pages of that classic. In 1957, Stephen's life changed when his father, Arnold, received a movie camera as a Father's Day gift from his wife. The 11-year-old Stephen couldn't wait to use it. At first, he staged film crashes with his Lionel trains and watched the films over and over. He thought they were great. His dad's movies, on the other hand, were blurry and boring. Stephen had lots of suggestions for improving them, but his father had a better idea. He simply gave Stephen the camera. So I took over the camera and I began to make little stories. My three sisters, younger sisters, sold tickets for these little 8-millimeter movies I was making. They go door to door to door to door selling tickets. In 1958, he became a Boy Scout and made a 9-minute film titled The Last Gunfight to earn his merit badge in photography. Spielberg cast his fellow scouts as cowboys, and when he screened it for them, the troop went wild, shouting, whistling, and cheering. In that moment, Stephen later said, I knew what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. He was 12 years old. Here's Spielberg on how it all started. I was infatuated with the control 
that movies gave me in creating a sequence of events or a feeling or a train wreck with two Lionel trains that I could then repeat and see over and over and over again. And I think it was just a realization that I could change the way I perceive life through another medium to make it come out better for me. And when I realized I could make life better for me through this little eight millimeter rinky-dink medium, I felt really good about my life, myself, and possibly bringing some other people into this amazing medium to enjoy what I was putting together. Young Spielberg didn't play sports and could barely run a mile. He was practically invisible to girls. He was short and skinny, and he was Jewish. Living in Phoenix, a city with very few Jewish families, made him a little different. But with a camera, he was less lonely and less of an outsider. While making these films, he found out that giving his classmates acting parts was like inviting them to a really great party, and they all wanted to come. In high school, he attained the rank of Eagle Scout before finding out that his family were moving again. This time, it was to Saratoga, California, where his dad would be working for IBM. For Stephen, far worse than the move was the news that his parents were separating. It was the unhappiest time in his life. Yet, the move brought him much closer to the center of the film industry. The chance came the summer before his senior year of high school, while visiting cousins in Los Angeles. Stephen took a tour of Universal Studios. They gave everybody a bathroom break about midday, and I got off to go to the bathroom. And I hid in the stall, and I waited until it was really quiet in the bathroom, assuming everybody had left and gotten back on the bus and left again. And I came out a half an hour later, and I was free. I was on the Universal Studios lot, but I spent the whole afternoon just walking in and out of doors, basically, sound stages and cutting rooms, and took my own tour and had an amazing time. At the end of the day, I went to borrow a telephone to call my cousin to come pick me up, and I fortuitously borrowed the telephone of the Universal Studios film librarian, a man named Chuck Silvers, who asked me what I was doing there. I told him the story I just told you, and uh, he laughed and thought that was had a lot of chutzpah and showed ambition and showed that I really wanted to be a director, or at least I wanted to break into the business in some way, and he gave me a three-day pass on his own name for me to come back for three full days and I did that and then I came back on the end of the third day and Chuck said he couldn't he didn't have the authority to sign any more passes and I should use my own you know resources or contacts I made over the last three days to well nobody would you know take me under their insurance umbrella and give me a chance to observe more so I took a shot at maybe the guard would recognize me without having to show him my papers. And so on the fourth day, I, same clothes, walked onto the lot and waved at Scotty, the guard. Remember Scotty? Scotty waved back. And I was, the next two and a half months during summer vacation, I was on the lot five days a week, every day for two and a half months until school began. And when we come back, more on the life of Steven Spielberg here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue the story of Steven Spielberg. We left off with a fortuitous tour of the Universal Studios that changed Steven's life. Let's pick back up where we left off. Steven roamed the sound stages taking notes. One day he found an empty office on the lot. So he called the switchboard and had the office's phone hooked up. Then, with his fake office as a base, he spent his days hanging around sets, talking with directors, editors, and actors, and learned everything he could about the business. It was the education of his dreams. Even getting kicked off an Alfred Hitchcock set was a thrill. Returning to high school for his senior year was quite a letdown. So was getting rejected by the film schools at the University of Southern California, USC, and the University of California at Los Angeles, UCLA, because of his poor grades. The only school that would take him was California State at Long Beach, and it didn't even have a film department. Stephen didn't want to go, but his parents felt differently. So he enrolled as an English major, went to as few classes as possible, and spent most of his time at Universal Studios as an unpaid intern. In order to get a paying job at Universal Studios, Steven had to persuade people to take a look at his films. So Spielberg wrote and shot a short love story and showed it to the execs at Universal. They loved it and offered him a seven-year contract to direct television. Spielberg confessed later, I quit college so fast, I didn't even clean out my locker. I think when I came back on the lot this time professionally, the first thing I realized when I moved into my official office, not my illegal office, but my legal office, was I knew where all the sound stages were, I knew where post-production was, I knew where the back lot was, I knew where all the bathrooms were, especially the one I hid in when I first got off the bus. And I, I felt like I had come home. I felt like Universal Studios had always been my home, was ordained to be my home for the rest of my life, and I realized I felt very, very much at home. This felt more familiar to me than the house I grew up in. That's a horrible, heinous thing to say. I love my mom and my dad and my three younger sisters, but this is where I felt I belonged. Spielberg's first job at Universal was directing an early episode of Night Gallery, a series of spooky half-hour shows with twisty surprise endings. Now I was doing my first television show starring Joan Crawford, no less, and the average age of the crew was 50. And um, I realized that, oh my God, this was the crew that made my favorite movies of all time. This was the generation that had produced the golden age of Hollywood. And when I showed up with my acne and my long hair and the viewfinder pretentiously around my neck like some kind of a, a talisman that would protect me from all evil, um, I think they took one look at me and they said, this kid better prove himself quickly or he's out of here. Because I remember being greeted by tremendous hostility from the crew, from the motion picture crew. And the only friends I had on that first television show were my actors. Surprisingly, maybe not so surprisingly, Barry Sullivan, Tom Bosley, Joan Crawford. They were the people that backed me. But the rank and file of the crew were just sending daggers my way, working as slowly as they could, not to get themselves fired, maybe to get me pushed off the show because I wound up four days behind schedule on my first professional job. But I learned so much from doing that show. Next, Spielberg directed an episode of Columbo starring Peter Falk, which earned him the rights to direct two action films, Duel and the Sugarland Express. And then 
there was the shark. It was decades before modern CGI, so a real mechanical shark was made for a movie they were calling Jaws. Weighing 12 tons with a body the size of a stretch limo, Spielberg named the shark Bruce after his lawyer. But while shooting the opening scene of the movie, Bruce sank to the bottom of the ocean, and the crew started calling the movie Flaws. Here's Spielberg on how he handled this setback. And the next morning we got the word that they were going to be down maybe three to four weeks with a shark. Uh, that's when I realized, okay, plan B. Now, I never planned for a plan B. But that Monday, I suddenly had to improvise a plan B, which was basically to make the film as scary as I possibly could by suggesting the shark without having to show the shark. And that became my motif for the rest of the picture. I promise you that if the shark had been working that first day and Chrissy Watkins had been taken in that first scene and the way my storyboards had, I had a fin in that shot, I had a conical nose coming out of the water, never seen the whole shark, I had a tail. Had there been any evidence of the shark, even on the scene where the pier is pulled out and comes back again and chases the swimmer back in, the fisherman, I promise you the audience wouldn't have leapt three feet out of their seats and thrown their popcorn into the air when the shark came out when Roy Schotter was chumming. You wouldn't have had that shock had the shark been used too often and too clearly before that. The shark not working when we needed it to work probably added $175 million to the box office because I think what's scary about that movie is, is the unseen, not exactly what we see. And when we do see the shark, it's shocking. Verna Fields, a tremendous film editor, would surgically cut a frame off the head of the shark and cut a frame off the tail of the shark and those two frames made the difference between the shark looking like a great white 26-foot-long predator or looking like a 26-foot-long turd. Jaws was a spectacular hit, the first ever summer blockbuster, earning a whopping $260 million. It also became the top-grossing film in history. Already planning another film, Spielberg knew one thing for sure— my next picture will be made on dry land, he said. There won't even be a bathroom scene. True to his word, Spielberg set his next picture far from the ocean, though it did have two bathroom scenes. In science fiction terms, an encounter of the first kind is a sighting of a UFO. An encounter of the second kind is seeing or feeling the effects of a UFO. An encounter of the third kind is having direct contact with the UFO and its alien passengers. When Spielberg wrote Close Encounters of the Third Kind, he decided that there would be no bad guys in it. But looking back today, there is one thing he would have done differently. The difference in when I wrote the story in my 20s and what I would have done today is, I don't think today, with a, being a dad of seven kids, I would have let my Richard Dreyfuss character actually get on the mothership and abandon his family to this, to this alien obsession and leave the planet. I'm not sure I would have done that today, but, but, but in my 20s, it was something that was absolutely would have been my choice. Spielberg's close friend, George Lucas, just wrapped Star Wars and came to the set of Close Encounters to see how things were progressing. Here again is Spielberg. George came back from 
Star Wars, a nervous wreck. He didn't feel Star Wars came up to the vision that he had initially had. He felt he had just made this little kid's movie, and he came to Mobile, Alabama, where I was shooting on this humongous set. And George hung out with me for a couple of days and looked around and said, oh my God, your movie's gonna be so much more successful than Star Wars. This is gonna be the biggest hit of all time. I can't believe the set, and I can't believe what you're getting, and oh my goodness. He said, I'll tell you what, I'll trade points with you. You wanna trade some points? He said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you two and a half percent of Star Wars if you give me two and a half percent of Close Encounters. So I said, sure, I'll gamble with that, great. And uh, I think I came out on top of that bet. <laughs> I think I did a lot better than George. Both of our movies were wildly profitable. Close Encounters made so much money, rescued Columbia from bankruptcy, and the most money I had ever made on a movie before was from Close Encounters. Close Encounters was just a, a, a meager success story, and Star Wars was a, a phenomenon. And of course, I was the happy beneficiary of a couple of net points of that movie, which I am still seeing money on today. Close Encounters brought Spielberg his first Oscar nomination for Best Director, and Star Wars passed Jaws as the top-grossing film in history. It was time for these two mega-directors to team up. The two put a screenplay together and hired actor Harrison Ford, who had just played Han Solo for Lucas in Star Wars. Lucas named Harrison Ford's character Indiana Smith, and the movie would be called Raiders of the Lost Ark. Spielberg liked everything but the hero's name. Well, how about Indiana Jones, Spielberg suggested. George Lucas produced, Steven Spielberg directed. Here's Spielberg. George had the idea that they were going after an antiquity called the Lost Ark of the Covenant, which I knew a little bit about. I should have known a lot more about it because I'm Jewish and George isn't. But <laughs> George just said, look, you can go over schedule for Columbia Universal on 841, but you're my friend. You can't go over schedule with basically what is the money I'm responsible for. That's all he had to say. And I think Raiders of the Lost Ark was probably the most prepared I've ever been in my career. And when we come back, more on the life of Steven Spielberg. We're spending the hour on his story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the life of Steven Spielberg, and let's continue where we last left off. Despite blistering heat, a scene with 7,000 live snakes, including five deadly cobras, and another scene with hundreds of tarantulas, Spielberg finished almost two weeks early. When Raiders opened a few months later, it was a smash, the most successful film of 1981, Spielberg became a household name. During one of the nights on location for Raiders of the Lost Ark, Spielberg began writing a story of a little alien. What if I were 10 years old again, he wondered, and he needed me as much as I needed him. When I first came up with the idea of E.T., I came up with the actual idea probably when I was a little, little kid, feeling very lost and alienated. 
being this Jewish kid in always all Gentile neighborhoods. But then later in life, when my parents were divorced, feeling very much lost and alone. And I remember on the set of Close Encounters, when I had Richard Dreyfuss and E.T. returning to the mothership, sort of gets swallowed up into the light. And I had this kind of amazing epiphany at that moment while the cameras were rolling. And I thought, I wonder if I should change the ending of this movie. Not another movie, but Close Encounters. What if E.T. is a ex foreign exchange student? What if that extraterrestrial, who we called Puck, stayed behind with Truffaut and Dreyfus goes and they take that E.T. back to Langley or Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and start to study him and communicate with him and really try to figure out what their race is like and how we can further our relationship. Wouldn't that be a great movie? Then I said, no, 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 I'll save that for another movie. But I was haunted by this idea of an E.T. that gets trapped on Earth and doesn't go back into the mothership. So in a sense, when I wrote the story of E.T., that was the progression of epiphanies that led up to the actual story of an alien who's lost and alone and three million miles from home. He doesn't go AWOL. He's curious. He's, his curiosity gets the better of him. And maybe the other aliens were, the botanists, were too busy categorizing and finding plants on Earth to put in their little greenhouse. But E.T. was interested in the big redwood trees, and he was walking away. 600-year-old E.T. is probably the most lost of all the kids I've ever had in a film. But he's no less lost than Elliot. Lost in a divorce, no real friends in his life. And that was the bonding of E.T. and Elliot. The alien and the alienated. The two souls, lost souls, who absolutely require each other for a very short amount of time so they can both survive in a spiritual way. I mean, for me, E.T. is the most spiritual movie ever made. And, and that was not an accident. I mean, it was something that I always deeply felt. And what Spielberg movie would be complete without the music of composer John Williams? John Williams has made the most remarkable contribution to all of my movies, and they reach the heart universally. In every country, on every continent of the planet, John Williams speaks to people, and John rewrites my movies musically. And I think with E.T., especially at the end, I, ILM and I can make those bicycles lift off and get off the ground. We can do that. But John Williams is the only one who can make them truly airborne because the audience lifts off the ground on John Williams' violins. And the audience is carried across the moon or the sun with John Williams' string section and his horns later on when they land. And I think the last 15 minutes of E.T. is as close to an opera because of John Williams' contributions to that movie than anything I've ever done before in my life. Here's a clip of Spielberg and Williams collaborating on the music for E.T. Spielberg operates the film projector while Williams sits in front of the piano. 
if it would be convenient to go into the call. Yeah. I like that. It, it, matter of fact, it seems like a very natural transition yeah. into the loneliness and out of the uh, the tenderness. Yeah. Yep. Let's see if we can do it. Okay. Let me go the back thing, the thing is, where do we shift from the call to the theme? Is it on the smile? Is it when he touches that's the a, face? That's it could be question. any. That's any a wonderful one of question, things. and you, 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 your choices are as many frames long as the sequence. Okay. I wouldn't let anybody hurt you. We could go together, you see? That's the, certainly the call. Isn't yes, it? that's the call. That's the call. And this is the loneliness. This, this is Elliot's love. This is his heartbreaking. Does he look up again? He looks up a second time. But that I, the, the call has to be there. Oh yeah, it? I yeah. think you're right. Absolutely. Let's get that. Absolutely. I always get that confused. Sometimes. Sometimes. Does it ever go up once in the movie <laughs> yet? yet? It hasn't gone up yet, has it? End. I'll save it for okay. the last reel. E.T. was Spielberg's biggest hit yet. It made more money than any other movie in history, topping Jaws and even Star Wars. Then there's Jurassic Park. I'd wanted to make a dinosaur picture all my life because I'm a huge fan of Ray Harryhausen, but I could never find a realistic way to do dinosaurs until Michael Crichton figured out a science that would make it almost allowable, which is, hey, if a mosquito bites a dinosaur 150 million years ago, it gets trapped in amber and is preserved in amber, and you extract the DNA from the blood inside the mosquito of the Tyrannosaurus rex, can we not bring back the T-Rex? And it was enough credible science that I went, that is one of the most genius uh, uh, combinations of science and imagination I had ever witnessed anybody come up with. And that was all Michael Crichton. There were a lot of risks involved in an art form that had never been perfected. A main character, digital dinosaur, had never been done before for the movie. So in a way, Jurassic Park was the first movie that ever made its made characters, where the entire success or failure of the story was dependent on these digital characters. That was the first time that was ever done, and that was the risk I think all of us took. When you have something which is so unfamiliar to us in our time, which is a Tyrannosaurus Rex, it's 34 feet standing upright, something that menacing, it's not as interesting for me to have people running through a jungle being menaced by a T-Rex because the people are in a prehistoric terra firma and they're, they're sort of in the territory of where the dinosaurs, when the dinosaurs ruled the earth and we're on their land now. But it's much more interesting for an audience, I think, to put a T-Rex next to a modern car or put raptors inside a modern industrial kitchen or inside a laboratory with computers everywhere, things that we today are familiar with. Jurassic Park was a landmark in visual effects and earned an unprecedented 914 million worldwide. And when we come back, our final installment of our hour-long celebration of the life, the work, the story of Steven Spielberg here on Our American Stories. And as always, 
All of our content can be found at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and now the final installment of the life of Steven Spielberg. The tremendous success of what Spielberg dubbed his popcorn movies gave him more creative freedom. Freedom to create Schindler's List. Schindler's List relates a period in the life of Oscar Schindler, a Nazi German businessman who saved the lives of more than 1,300 mostly Polish-Jewish refugees from the Holocaust by employing them in his factories during World War II. Spielberg did post-production work on Jurassic Park at night in Poland and filmed Schindler's List during the day. Here's Spielberg sharing with us the story of casting real Germans to play the Nazi SS soldiers and why people should see Schindler's List. Many of the German actors who interviewed for Schindler's List, and I saw many of their interviews on tape, many of them actually, knowing I was watching the tape, or would be watching the tape, apologized uh, for the generation preceding theirs. When I got there, and I began to, to work on Schindler's List, once those same German actors put on the uniforms of the Waffen-SS, um, um, my attitude changed, and I couldn't talk to them. I couldn't, and, and between shots, they would be schmoozing with me, trying to ask me questions about E.T. and Raiders of the Lost Star, questions that someone who liked those movies would ask the director. And I didn't really want to make small talk. I, I couldn't get past the uniform, and then my prejudice began to come out, and I began to look at it, and I began to say, my goodness, you know, um, how could I be blaming, you know, the sins of the fathers onto the sons and daughters? And then one day, an amazing thing, thing happened, very early in the schedule, thank goodness. We had Passover. There's a rabbi there, and a lot of my crew and cast came in. And then in walks all the German actors, and they put on yarmulkes. They sat next to the Israeli actors, and the Israelis opened up the Haggadahs, the prayer books, and began to show the German actors what Passover is all about. And I cried because um, I saw something beautiful that was essentially an entire generation of young German actors that are not culpable and should never be blamed and should never have any fingers pointed at them for something that they weren't around to stop. And that was the message I wanted people to hear, that generations were saved by Oscar Schindler. Uh, 1,300 people spawned 6,000 descendants compared to the 4,000 descendants that are alive in Poland today, down from 3 million Jews before 1939. One of the reasons Spielberg made Schindler's List was that he wanted his children to understand this terrible time in Jewish history. 
It was the first time my children ever saw me cry, he said. When Schindler's List opened, audiences cried too. Though it was sad and sometimes shocking, it also showed courage and decency overcoming terrible evil. The film won the Oscar for Best Picture in 1993, and Spielberg won his first Oscar for Best Director. In 1994, Spielberg's friends, Jeffrey Katzenberg and David Geffen, approached him about starting a film studio together. It was a daring idea. Nobody had launched a new studio in decades because it was so difficult and expensive. Yet Katzenberg had produced a string of animated mega-hits for Disney, including The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and The Lion King. David Geffen, whose work in the music business had made him a billionaire, was one of entertainment's most powerful deal-makers. Spielberg was now considered the world's most successful director. If anybody could launch a new studio, it was these three. In October 1994, DreamWorks Studios opened for business. It was under the DreamWorks label that Spielberg shot Saving Private Ryan. Here's Spielberg. What motivated me to do Private Ryan was this was a tribute to my dad. This was 100% for my dad. When I got the Oscar for Ryan, I, I said, Dad, this is for you. This is yours. I mean, I told my dad many, many years ago that I was going to make a World War II movie for him. The only thing that disappointed my dad was it was about Europe, not, not Asia. And my dad said, but Steve, you didn't tell my story. What about the 490th Bomb Squadron, you know? What about those who flew the hump, my friends who were lost flying the hump? You know, I said, no, Dad, you're right. I didn't tell that story, but this is for your generation. I remember having the first industry screening of Raiders of the Lost Ark, and I had two director friends of mine who I really respect saying, wow, the greatest sequence of this movie is the first 15 minutes for that rolling ball and the spiders on the guy's back. And, and I kept thinking, oh, my God, I taught myself in Raiders, and the movie never recovered, and I felt I was about to do the same thing. When I when I shot Saving Private Ryan, I didn't quite know what that opening sequence was going to be because I shot the whole movie in continuity, and I also certainly shot the whole first sequence in continuity. The first shot of the movie is Tom Hanks' hand shaking, uh, his canteen to his face, reveal his captain's bars, and show it's Tom Hanks and pull the camera back in, 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 in the Higgins boat. That was the first shot of the movie, and I went right through to the end of the picture in continuity, which meant that I was making up the entire opening attack of Omaha Beach, the landings. When I say made it up, I didn't make up things that didn't actually happen that, that Stephen Ambrose hadn't written about or other veterans hadn't informed me of. But I did the whole thing stream of consciousness. I had no storyboards, no pre-visualization on the computer. Did the whole thing from actually up here in a weird way because the whole thing was being improvised in a very safe, rational, controlled way, but improvised nonetheless. And I think if anything gave that scene its impact, its first-person, in-your-face impact, it was because I didn't know what was going to happen next, just like real combat. Spielberg knew that, like Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan could be painful to watch, and he was prepared for his audiences to stay away. This particular movie, we felt like we were... We were making a contribution. We were actually thinking, you know, without patting ourselves on the back, that this movie was going to come out. And I thought nobody would go to see this picture. They might see a, a few people go the first weekend because Tom Hanks is the star, but th they're going to be so turned off by the violence, they're not going to come back the second weekend. And I thought this would be a one-weekend wonder, but I thought the film was going to add something 
to inform audiences what soldiers have to really go through when they're in the hellfire of combat. It's honoring all the dads who were part of the greatest generation by having an old man going to the American Cemetery in Normandy and, and visiting that actual site. Every time I go, I cry. I think the book ends, place it in a much larger historical context and show audiences today that this really is about the old men now who were the boys then who allowed us to have a life today the way we live our lives and to have the relative freedoms that we now enjoy. If I had to do it all over again, I'd do it the very, very same way because I did that for the veterans. Matter of fact, it's the veterans who love the bookends because it puts it in a contemporary context. Saving Private Ryan was far from a one-weekend wonder. It was the most successful film of 1998. It was nominated for 11 Academy Awards and won Spielberg his second Oscar for Best Director. In closing, here's Spielberg on the secret to his success. My job is to put the audience inside the movie. My job is to reduce the aesthetic distance between the audience and the experience. I don't say, okay, now I just have to make light audience popcorn movies to give them relief from whatever my, you know, subconscious demons are that have pushed me into more historical, darker subjects. I don't think that way. When a film's time has come, I know it. I, it doesn't mean the film will be a success. I just know when it's ready for me to commit to directing it. I intuitively know those things. And I think my intuition has been about 75% right on and 25% not right on. And so I'm going with the odds. I'm just going with the odds. Steven Spielberg has 159 credits as a producer and 56 as a director. A few more of those include Poltergeist, The Color Purple, Hook, Jurassic Park, Catch Me If You Can, Munich, and Lincoln. His films have set and broken box office records for decades. They often show how acts of personal courage can change history. They have made people, millions and millions of people, laugh, think, and cry. Nobody, not even Walt Disney, has been so completely wired into what the public wants to see in the cinema. And as a result, his personal wealth is now so vast People have given up trying to estimate it. And it all started in 1957 when he borrowed his father's movie camera. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg. Superb storytelling. And it just shows you what one thing can do in a kid's life. That camera doesn't stumble into his hands. Who knows what would have happened? You just can't know. And as always, our storytelling, and especially our storytelling around history, and Steven Spielberg was born on this day in history in 1946, is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And when you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with her terrific and free online courses. And boy, we've done a whole bunch of these on the arts, on history itself, from the founders straight through to the Battle of Shiloh, but also we celebrate our great rights and intellectual property rights through the arts. And as always, we like to emphasize that without the constitutionally protected right to patent, to intellectual property, 
All of the art that we get and appreciate here in this country is not possible. You can't do these movies in Cuba. You can't do them in Yugoslavia. You certainly can't do them in North Korea. And so always we're celebrating American stories here on Our American Stories. Steven Spielberg's story. Thanks, Greg Hengler, as always. Just superb work. This is Our American Stories, and joining us now for two segments, Philip K. Howard, Chairman of Common Good, author of The Rule of Nobody. And we're talking to Philip today because of a column he wrote in the Wall Street Journal, and the title of it was The President's Right to Say You're Fired. Today's civil service system violates the Constitution, and President Trump has the power to fix it. And Philip, thank you so much for joining us. Nice to be with you. And let's take this, if we can, above and beyond Trump, because I think this column addresses almost all the presidents since perhaps the 1950s, Philip. Talk about this thing called the civil service uh, branch of government. Who are civil servants and why did you write this piece? Um, well, civil servants are the people who make government work. I mean, they're, they're uh, people who tend to be um, have careers in government. Um, and so there were about 2 million non-defense civilian employees in the federal government, for example, not counting outside contractors and such. And these people are civil servants. And, um, and they make government work. They work in all kinds of, you know, they work in air traffic controllers and uh, homeland defense, uh, uh, homeland security, you know, TSA officers at the airports and environmental officials. They're, you know, they're the people who do the daily work of regulating and administering the many programs that the federal government has. I'm going to read a line and maybe you could explain it to our audience. You write in the column, although civil service was once thought the cure for government corruption, it has become a cancer killing good government. Talk about these two items that you talk about almost simultaneously here. Yeah, it's um, the idea of civil service was to create a professionalized service of people who were competent as opposed to the spoil system, which is what existed through much of the 19th century, where uh, people would get government jobs just because they supported somebody in an election, and often they didn't even have to show up to work. Right. So, so, so government didn't work very well because it was run by these political hacks who didn't do a very good job. So, so it was good to fix that. So we're not advocating a return to the spoil system. But, but civil service was was always supposed to be the quote merit system. People would get their jobs and keep their jobs based on merit. And what happened really beginning in the 1960s uh, is, that, is that civil service was no longer based on merit. It became a legal entitlement. And so, it, once again, it didn't matter whether you did your job or not. And so there are people who wouldn't show up for work or would never cooperate, and they just keep their jobs. 
And there were key moments in this change, Philip, and one had to happen somewhere around the 1950s, as you point out, in which it became harder to fire federal government workers or people who are civil servants. Why did that happen? Why, how did that initially happen? Because that was, I think, the, the nose under the tent, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was really three things. Uh, uh, John F. Kennedy, as a, as a sort of a political payback to public employee support, um, gave them the right to collectively bargain. And so they would have these contracts, you know, there that made it much harder to fire people. Um, and then, uh, you know, the 1960s was a tumultuous decade, and there was something called the Due Process Revolution. And this, everybody sort of started looking at everything as a matter of individual rights. So um, whenever there was a dispute in the workplace, uh, the court said, well, you know, a job is really important to somebody, therefore they should never lose it unless you can prove at a trial that they should lose it or whatever. And uh, nobody was thinking about, well, how does the whole world office work? Right. You know, they were just putting a magnifying glass on the one employee. And it became like, you know, it had been like convicting somebody of a crime to <laughs> to make them lose their jobs. And then those two things, the John F. Kennedy executive order and the, quote, due process, right, were then enshrined by Congress in a law, the Civil Service Reform Act of 1978. And so at this point, it's basically impossible to fire somebody. Um, uh, last year, there was a report by the Government Account Accountability Office that um, 99%, over 99% of all federal employees got a fully successful employee rating. And the reason for that is not because they're all so great, is because... If you say anything negative in the personnel file, they have the right to make to go to trial and make you prove it if you're a manager. So, you know, nobody wants to bother to do that. So, you know, it's it's you know, literally more people die on the job than are ever demoted or fired. Yeah, I had a friend once tell me the only way people leave is they either die or they retire. Um, that's it, and they don't get fired. And by the way, we know about this also, Philip, in, in the New York City public school system. My dad was a superintendent of schools in the northern New Jersey school district, and he, by the time he became superintendent, he entered the school district in the 1950s, rose to superintendent in the 90s, and he said, I watched uh, a superintendent be able to fire people and then not be able to fire people. And he said it was a cosmic shift in the ability of superintendents, let alone principals, to really move the needle in their workforce. Talk about how what's happened on the federal workforce, if you do, just in about a minute right here, Philip, uh, has trickled into the state workforces and the local workforces. Uh, oh, oh, sure. So, so this is true of government in general. And the evil here is not that there are so many terrible people in government. It's that when it doesn't matter what you do on the job, it affects the culture of the workplace. Everybody knows it doesn't matter. So you end up Actually, it's like pulling the plug on the energy in the workplace. So what's horrible about being in a bad school or a bad you know, government office is, is this kind of almost like a depressant in the air. Because everybody knows it doesn't matter what you do. I think that's a perfect point. When we come back, 
More with Philip K. Howard, chairman of Common Good and author of The Rule of Nobody. We're talking to him about his Wall Street Journal editorial, or column that is, The President's Right to Say You're Fired. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. American stories, and we continue the story that we're telling you right now about civil service workers in this country and the culture that's being created from this utter lack of accountability as it relates to job performance. And again, Philip K. Howard, chairman of the Common Good, author of Common Good, and author of The Rule of Nobody. Let's get back to that culture because we all know we've worked in places like this in the private workforce, Philip, where there aren't incentives aligned properly, where certain people get hired and others don't. And there's sort of an, an immorality in the workforce. That is, there's no accountability in the workforce. And if it can happen in the private sector, my goodness, how bad can it actually get in the public service sector? And, and here's, I think, the key point, Philip. Who wants to go work? Are we attracting our best and brightest in the civil service sector if there are no incentives and, and no accountability? No, it's, it, 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 it's a lose-lose situation. So, so good people don't want to uh, go into government because they don't want to be in this culture. Uh, and there's another unintended effect of this, which is that um, – which is that when you can't hold people accountable, you give them very detailed rule books on how to do everything. So you have these thousand-page rule books in government, literally. And well, who wants to go work in a place where you're just a mindless cog in this thousand-page machine? Yep. You know what? You know what's fun about life is to is to wake up in the morning and to. Go to your job knowing that you can make a difference with your own ideas and your own way of doing things. If you're a, a, a government employee and and you can't exercise your judgment because you're you're shackled with a thousand you know with a thousand rules and somebody asks to do something sensible and you say no I'm sorry the rule makes me do it this way you know yeah. the rule the rule made me do it then then uh, who wants to do it and the same thing with teachers who wants to spend hours filling out forms that nobody reads yeah. because the rules tell you to do it so so it's 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 a terrible culture and it creates a terrible legal structure and the and then the, just to keep going the rippling effects it makes it impossible to actually do regulatory reform and to make government sensible, you know, act sensibly, because ultimately at the point of implementation, 
humans always have to make a judgment. Nothing good ever happened in the world because somebody followed a rule. (laughs) Rules are only there to prevent bad things from happening. So if you really want the infrastructure to be rebuilt, for example, or something else, somebody has to decide, well, how much environmental review is there? How much, you know, how do we balance the considerations of this and that to give a permit on time? Well, if nobody has the authority to do that because they don't, then none of those things happen. That's right. That's right. And by the way, I'm going to quote one other thing here to to reiterate that point and maybe flush it out a bit more. You write, we've come full circle. Instead of guarding against public jobs as political property, civil service has become a property right of the employees themselves. Federal workers answer to no one. And again, this this creates really bad cultures when no one's answerable to anybody else. Further elucidate that point you were making. Yeah, Yeah, so... So you end up having civil servants being the enemy of democracy when they should be the tool of democracy. And so the links in the chain are broken. We elect somebody as president. We want to hold them accountable for doing something. But in fact, the president pushes a button and nothing happens. And so, you know, what I, and it leads to all these rippling effects of, you know, having laws and regulations be too detailed and stupid. So you end up having central planning which, of course, then means you get a worse quality of person in government because who wants to work in that? And then that then it's a vicious cycle leads to even more stupid rules, you know, as, as people try to cope with the, the, the fact that government doesn't work very well. So the only way to fix this is to abandon it and to actually create a structure not in which anybody can be fired. You can always have safeguards against political firing and stuff. They had that before the 1950s. But you've got to create a system that's goals-oriented, where government and regulation and rules are much simpler, where they focus on um, giving the permits, and because you've given a measure of authority to officials, you have to be able to fire them. Indeed. And right now, the president of the United States, any president of the United States, how many people can he actually fire of the total aggregate wor- workforce. Oh, 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 none. He he gets to a point, a couple of thousand people, maybe two percent of the workforce at, at most, and he can, those serve it as well. But but they in turn can't manage the agencies they're 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 running. So so what I argue in this piece is that is that this system is actually unconstitutional. It won't actually get voluntarily changed by Congress because the, because the public unions are too politically powerful, like the teachers' union. But, uh, but Article Two of the Constitution says the president has the authority over the executive branch, and there's 170 years of of uh, Supreme Court rulings that basically talk about quote the illimitable power of the president over employees. Well, it's one thing to create a neutral civil service system, which I'm all for. It's another thing to create a system that's completely insulated from accountability, which I think is clearly unconstitutional. Indeed. In fact, you quote here, executive power is toothless without practical authority over personnel. If any power whatsoever is in its nature executive, James Madison once observed, it is the power of appointing, overseeing, and controlling those who execute the laws. So there it is, one of our great founders, one of the primary voices, particularly on the, on the Bill of Rights, uh, James Madison. And there we have his quote. There's an acronym, actually, that you talk about, Philip, in the piece for how uh, the, the, the civil servants deal with incoming administrations. Uh, and there's an acronym pronounced WIG, 
We'll right. be here when you're gone. We'll yeah, be here when right. you're gone. Yeah, it's famous, famous. I mean, you know, public employees famously, if they don't like the policies of uh, of the president, they just drag their feet. It's a passive-aggressive stuff, and nothing ever happens. Well, the only way to cure that is to say, you know, is for whoever it is, the deputy assistant secretary, to say, we're going to do the following. It's going to get done in 60 days. If it's not done in 60 days, you know, and there's no good reason why it wasn't done in 60 days, then we're going to get new people. Yeah, well, it'll be a fascinating Supreme Court case because, let's face it, uh, executive orders were designed for just this kind of thing. And I think now with the new Supreme Court uh, nomination in place, I think this could be a remarkable test case for the president of the United States to say, this is within my purview, it's within the constitutional framework, for me to actually exercise my authority and fire a lot more people. Do you, well, yeah, do you yes, think this and, will happen? And, yes, and, and, and the irony here is what you need to do is not fire a lot of people, but just to be able to fire people. Right. Because then people act differently. Yep. And they may even not join. Different kinds of people may be recruited as well, Philip. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So what I'm recommending to the Trump administration is they certainly avoid, do not fire anybody for political reasons. Right. That's, too, that's too charged. Find people who are not doing the job, somebody. Tell them that they're no longer going to be doing that and they should go find work elsewhere. Let them bring the lawsuit, take it to the Supreme Court, and then win. And what's remarkable, Philip, is common good is comprised of really remarkable people on the left and the right, understanding that this civil service problem is indeed a bipartisan problem. Last but not least, and this is just a side question, when was it uh, turned into a good idea that the civil service unions could, could collectively bargain? The citizens are not at that table collectively bargaining, are they? Yeah, you no. Know, who are they bargaining against? They're bargaining against the voters. I mean, it's really Franklin Roosevelt thought that public unions were an oxymoron. So wait a minute. There, you know, the people who work for government are supposed to be working for the people. The government doesn't work for the employees. And what's happened is they're bargaining for themselves against the public interest. So you can't hold people accountable. I mean, it's really it, 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 democracy means nothing if they're not if the links in the chain are not all you know, connected. I mean, what does it matter who you elect if the agency just works the same way it did before you elected somebody new? Yep. And that's why that acronym is so, so important. And it's so aloof to the democratic process. It's basically saying, screw you. Yeah, that's right. So we need a completely new framework. But but the reality is, in, in common good, we're doing this. And people can go to simplifygov.org if they want to see our platform. But you know, we're doing this. Basically, it's one of those times in history where it's time not to get rid of government. We're not Tea Party types. It, where it's time to actually just recodify it, simplify it, bring everything up to date, um, you know, get rid of all the unnecessary, um, you know, jungle and tangle so that people can actually understand what's required of them and let people take responsibility, and then we can hold them accountable. It's a lot easier than trying to comply with millions of words of law. Indeed, and I'll end this conversation with the end of your column. America needs to remake Washington for the 21st century. The only path forward is to return to constitutional first principles and, by executive order, create a civil service system that actually serves the American people. Philip K. Howard. Chairman of Common Good, author of The Rule of Nobody, 
uh, in the Wall Street Journal. Thanks so much for joining us. Nice to be with you. You bet. This is Our American Stories, and up next, two of our favorite things, history and music. And once a week, Jesse brings us This Week in Music History. This Week in Music History, 1968, the director of the University of Tennessee's then-audio lab, Dr. David M. Lipscomb, reported that a guinea pig subjected to 88 hours of rock and roll music recorded at 120 decibels suffered acute damage to the inner ears. 120 decibels is the equivalent to the sound of a thunderclap, a chainsaw, or loud headphones. In 1979, Bob Dylan released Slow Train Coming, an album of religious songs including the Grammy Award-winning single Gotta Serve Somebody. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. The song was recorded in May of that same year at Muscle Shoals Sound Studios in Sheffield, Alabama. The song still enjoys airplay and has been covered by Mavis Staples, Etta James, and Willie Nelson. This week in music history, 1986, Rick Allen, a drummer with Def Leppard, made his first live appearance with the band after losing an arm in a car accident. Here's Rick Allen talking about how he got his first gig with Def Leppard at a very young age. I was about to give up at the ripe old age of 14. Um, because I was I was fed up with the local bands and then I met with Joe and Steve in a local club and then I went for an audition got the job and at 14 I joined Def Leppard around about my 15th birthday and in 1988 Steve Winwood was number one on the US album chart with his fifth solo album Roll With It the title cut also topped the US singles charts and was nominated for two Grammy Awards in 89 the album itself was also nominated as album of the year And born this week in music history, singer Isaac Hayes, most notably known for the 1971 U.S. number one hit, theme from Shaft. Is everybody okay? That sounded like a gunshot. And the 1998 U.K. number two single as Chef, 
from the animated series South Park. Is he dead? Don't let him bleed on my Meredith Baxter Burney Memorial towel. I was very, uh, I was suspicious because my agent didn't really tell me what was going on. I said, what kind, what, what kind of film? He said, well, it's a television thing. It's a, it's a cable thing. It's a, an adult late night uh, animated cartoon. I said, oh, really? What is it about? He said, well, it's, um, it's cutting edge. What, 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 you, what you saying? He said, well, uh, you play a chef at an elementary school. I said, oh, I see. Hayes was found dead at his home on August 10th of 2008 at age 65. And in 1961, this week in music history, Patsy Cline recorded the classic Willie Nelson song, Crazy. Cline was still on crutches after going through a car windshield in a head-on collision two months earlier and had difficulty reaching the high notes of the song due to her broken ribs. Crazy, I'm crazy for feeling so lonely. Crazy spent 21 weeks on the charts and eventually became one of her signature tunes. Here's Willie Nelson on his admiration for the song. I thought it was a pretty good song when I wrote it, but I had no idea that it would be, you know, that well accepted. It was, you know, not that far-fetched for me to compare myself with someone crazy. I think all of that can work anyway, you know. I think if you're really a songwriter and uh, you, you, you know, make your living that way, you should be able to write a song about, you know, a bug crawling across the floor. But it doesn't mean it's going to be good. But <laughs> you should be able to rhyme a few lines. In 1979, The Knack started a five-week run at number one on the U.S. singles chart with My Sharona, the group's only U.S. chart topper. Lead singer Doug Figer said he was inspired to write the tune by Sharona Alperin, a 17-year-old senior in high school who later became his girlfriend. Figer and Alperin eventually got married to other people, but they remained friends. And who could forget Weird Al's version of this song? In Born This Week in Music History, 1920, John Lee Hooker, blues singer-guitarist. His 1951 U.S. album, I'm in the Mood, selling over a million copies at the time. Hooker died in 2001. Perhaps his most famous hit, Boom Boom, was released as a single in May of 1962, spending eight weeks on the charts, peaking at number 16. And in 1969, Johnny Cash started a four-week run at number one on the U.S. album chart with Johnny Cash at San Quentin. The album was a recording of a live concert given to the inmates at San Quentin State Prison and was the follow-up to Cash's previous live album, the critically acclaimed and commercially successful Folsom Prison. San Quentin, you've been living hell to me. you blistered me since 1963. I've seen them come and go and I've seen them die And long ago I stopped asking why San Quentin, I hate every inch of you You cut me and you scarred me through and through And I'll walk out a wiser, weaker man Mr. Congressman, you can't understand. 
This week in music history, 1975, Queen started recording Bohemian Rhapsody at Rockfield Studio in the UK. The song was recorded over three weeks. Freddie Mercury had mentally prepared for the song beforehand and directed the band throughout the sessions. May, Mercury, and Taylor sing their vocal parts continually for 10 to 12 hours a day, resulting in 180 separate overdubs. Here's some of the raw tracks. And this week in music history, 1985, Huey Lewis and the News started a two-week run at number one on the U.S. singles chart with The Power of Love, written specifically for the movie Back to the Future. What are you looking at, butthead? It gave the band their first number one hit in the U.S. and a top ten in the U.K. If that's not the epitome of what the 80s sounded like, I don't know what is. In 1965, two female Beatles fans hired a helicopter to fly over the house that the Beatles were renting in Beverly Hills, California. They jumped from the helicopter into the swimming pool and were arrested. And that's this week in music history. What are you looking at, butthead? For our American stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And great job as always, Jesse. And let's stick right with those great sounds of the 1980s. And Huey Lewis in the news. This is Our American Stories, our This Week in Music History, brought to us by Jesse Edwards. This is Our American Stories, and this week is National Infertility Awareness Week, and we're bringing you moving stories about infertility throughout the entire week. And today, it's a story written by Leah Weitz Cohen that is titled, quote, Facing Infertility, and our own Faith Garcia performed it for us. Let's take a listen to Leah's story. I hardly knew her. Miriam was a 30-something professional. We sat in the same office and had worked side by side for about a year. She was always very nice, intelligent, and charming. But we were never close since she lived in another community and we didn't really travel in the same circles. I guess we were just so busy with our own lives and since our lives were so different, they never really coincided. We just never had all that much in common. After all, her whole world seemed to revolve around her work. Whereas my career was my family with the office but a small part of my life. I'd always thought she was happy. Everything in her life was going just as she'd planned. She loved her job and was advancing up the corporate ladder. She had a caring and successful husband, and they had just bought a beautiful home. Everything was going right. Everything was perfect. Or so I thought. And then one day... 
Out of the clear blue, as we stood around the coffee machine, she suddenly burst into tears. Startled, I tried to calm her, and she, when she felt a bit better, she poured her heart out to me. Everything was going right in her life, except for one thing. She was not getting pregnant. Miriam told me she and her husband had been trying to conceive, never expecting any problems. But after trying for over two years, nothing had happened. At first, they'd laugh it off as work-induced stress. But after a while, they realized it was a more serious problem. And so, while everything else was going so well, this one thing certainly was not. And this one thing was what they desired more than anything else. I thought of nothing else. She recalled to me, I would be sitting in a meeting with a client and would be thinking about having babies. I remember once one of our coworkers made an innocent remark about going away for the weekend with her husband and leaving her kids with her mother. You see, she was nervous about the kids missing her and her mother's ability to cope with the three little ones. She smiled at me and said, You're so lucky you don't have these problems. I gritted my teeth smiled at her, and then went to the bathroom and cried for two hours. I felt so terrible that someone said that to her and then realized how it could have so easily have been me. What had I said in the past? Or how had I been insensitive? It never even occurred to me that this was a painful topic. Never having had an, any inkling that she struggled with fertility problems in truth, never having realized that anyone struggled with fertility problems, I was not aware of what a painful issue it was in so many lives. I was taken aback. Here, I had been working next to this young woman for a year. We chatted casually about all kinds of things, and I had had the feeling that her life was proceeding just as she'd planned. Yet, all along, she'd been feeling deep down miserable. And just hiding it well. And then one day over coffee, she could keep it in no longer. Out it poured. And to someone she barely knew. At first, honestly, I didn't know how to react. Ironically, I had always been a bit intimidated by her. Miriam was a real powerhouse. Next to her, such a successful career woman, I felt like an ordinary housewife. Little did I know that it was what I had that she valued the most. But Miriam seemed to need someone to confide in, someone objective and somewhat removed from her personal life. And I had a responsibility to listen. Well, I did not know why she picked me, I figured that if she had, I owed it to her to try and help in whatever way I could. She told me she had started seeing a medical professional, a fertility specialist, who kept sending her for more and more tests, with no results. I was overwhelmed. I would go to the doctor's office to do an ultrasound test to see when I was ovulating, and then rush to work. Many times I came late, and though the boss was very understanding, I felt bad having to explain to him and to all of my coworkers why I was late, and often grumpy. And then when I started on medication, I felt worse physically as well. And after all that, I would get my period. 
I was a total nervous wreck. But just getting to a doctor, she explained, is not enough. Apparently, each doctor has a specific specialty, and a doctor who helps one couple may not really be able to help another. Miriam said she's met many couples who spent endless hours pursuing unsuitable doctors and inappropriate, time-consuming, anxiety-provoking treatments. Sometimes they would wait for months just to get to see a particular doctor only to be told that they should stop trying, that they were too old to conceive. You just don't know what to do, who to talk to, she said. And I couldn't speak about it with anyone around me. My immediate family felt bad for us, didn't want to bring up the subject at all. My younger sister was wrapped up in her own kids, and it was obviously too personal a matter to discuss with professional colleagues. All my friends either had their own children to keep them busy or weren't even interested in becoming pregnant. And they certainly didn't want to hear about my troubles. I felt all alone. As though I was the only person in the world with such problems. I had no one to turn to. Well, I was certainly flattered that she decided to confide in me, a virtual stranger. It must have been an act of sheer desperation on her part. In retrospect, of course, I should have realized how overwhelmingly difficult it must have been to have trouble conceiving, especially in our community. After all, Judaism places incredible value on family life and raising children. I'm ashamed to admit I had not really given the whole subject of infertility much thought. I guess for me, I had just taken it for granted that people had babies when they chose to. You see, it had never really occurred to me that maybe some people that I thought just must not have wanted children might have very badly wanted them and just couldn't have them. I never thought to be sensitive when meeting with someone and immediately asking, so how many kids do you want to have? I started wondering how many people might have extremely painful stories to relay about my thoughtlessness. The first thing I did after Miriam and I spoke was to research the computer to learn more about infertility. Sadly, Miriam and her husband are far from the only ones. They are just one of thousands of couples who experience problems conceiving. In fact, about one in seven of all couples may have problems with fertility at some point during their married life. And it appears that the numbers only increase as the couples get older. This means that around 15% of couples may not become pregnant after trying for 12 months. Some will subsequently conceive without any intervention, but most will require some medical assistance. It is unfortunately a rather widespread problem affecting many. And here I was, basically unaware. A few months later after the coffee machine incident, Miriam arrived in the office one day looking much more at peace than I had seen her in a long time. She had finally found a medical professional whom she trusted and who was a source of tremendous emotional support and comfort for her and her husband and was guiding them through the entire process of fertility treatments. He was helping them put things into perspective and regain control of their lives. With this positive feedback she was now receiving, she was continuing treatment with greater confidence and a renewed sense of hope. 
Miriam continues to thank me for being there when she needed me. The truth is, I have learned a lot from her and have a lot to thank her for. I have learned to be more aware, to open my ears and my heart to others. And if someone should choose to confide in me and to express her feelings, or if someone just appears to be overwhelmed and in need of some support, I will try my best to listen, to let her speak freely of her frustrations and disappointments. Because of Miriam, I've started volunteering at a center for couples with fertility problems. Sharing with these people their hopes and concerns. There are hundreds of couples like Miriam and her husband, most suffering in pain and silence. They may well be our neighbors, our friends, people we go to synagogue with. And we may often be oblivious or insensitive or too absorbed in our own lives to share their worries. Through this incident, I have become determined to help in any way I can. And not just by providing information about infertility to those who suffer from it, but to those who fortunately don't, so that they will hopefully become a source of support and strength to those who do, rather than a source of pain and sorrow. Most importantly, I have learned to count my blessings and never take anything for granted. And that's a superb read. Thank you, Faith, and what a great piece by Leah White's Cohen. National Infertility Awareness Week. Leah was writing that about a friend, and she was writing it for anyone who's experienced infertility and the battles and the consequences of infertility. Leah's story, her friend's story, here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 